0: Well, we are in the book of Philippians, and um, I want to um, just jump right into it this morning. We have a lot of ground to cover here, and we have a great uh, a moment of baptism after the service, so I want us to look forward to that as well. Both of the—we we, we take communion and experience baptism today. These are always rich times to gather as a family of believers. And <clears throat> uh, as, the, as you can see from the slide there— one of the, there are many different themes throughout um, this little four chapter book in the New Testament called Philippians, where uh, a guy named Paul, who was an apostle, which is just simply an authorized messenger of Jesus, is writing to a little group of 50 so believers in a Roman colony called Philippi. And in this book, there's uh, a lot of talk about joy. Uh, and we the last few weeks we talked about joy as learning how to reinterpret your circumstances in Christ we're going very slow through this book Uh, that's not because it's a style I prefer necessarily it's because I think these kind of books require us to really slow down and um, at some point you should be if you've been following with us in this series in Philippians At some point, you should be thinking, well, that sounds a lot like the message he said three or four weeks ago, at which point I'm going to say precisely, Uh, because there's lots of layers that come around again and again in here, and that will be the case today as we consider this idea of surrendering my big story for the big story Uh, which is another way that gets us to joy and humility and some of the other themes uh, in this book. But uh, let um, let me pray for us, and then we'll get underway. Father, thank you for speaking, that we have light in this dark world. Right now, in the few moments that we have, bless me with clarity bless those here with attentiveness and work Jesus more into people's hearts and out of for his glory. Amen. So so in this section, we're in Philippians chapter 1 today, um, and uh, I already appreciated uh, someone's comment this morning that, wow, we're covering a whole lot more than one verse. Um, The um, uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 19 and uh, we'll read this section in just a moment here but um, what we're doing is is thinking about the big story of the Bible the gospel the kingdom when, when Jesus taught us to pray he said uh, our father our not my father our father hallowed be your name make your name greater than any other name uh, thy kingdom come in other words Make this place on earth a place like it is in heaven where your will is done. So all of that's part of the big story. And the big story is all about showing off God's glory. We never add to God's glory. We never ever add to God's glory because we can't give something that God already has. So when the Bible speaks about glorifying God, it just means making God's glory more visible through you which delights God and also honors you, strangely enough, but uh, so how the big story showing off God's glory, how that's such a great story that it makes me gladly surrender my story, my story of trying to seek my own glory, my story of wanting to be happy, my story of wanting to suffer less in this world, My story of wanting to feel better about myself in this world. My story of wanting more people to adore me in this world. Uh, Whatever it is, we surrender all of that and uh, we get swallowed up in the big story. One of the things that hopefully will happen today if the slides work and even if they don't, you have the same text in your bulletin, is to again encourage you to be soaking in this book once a week at least these four chapters you could read, but even slowing down and just hovering over a few verses. For example, imagine if you just wrote out these verses that I'm going to preach on today. You just took one day for, and in about five ten minutes, you just wrote them out word for word, and then you just sat there and looked at what you wrote, and you penciled over it, and you hovered over it, and you talked to the Lord about it. I, just, I wonder what would come out in that moment and said, Lord, what are you saying to me from these few verses? What are you saying to us as a church from these few verses? And by the way, if you want to do that, next week, chapter 1, 27 through 30, there you go. Um, but here we have this story, and it uh, falls out in these, these, I've put it into, when I looked at this, I, I put it into three little sections, even though it's one long run-on run sentence in originally as Paul wrote it. So let me read it for you. This is beginning actually in um, verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall, which I shall choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desires to part and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary in your account. Convinced of this? I know that I will remain and continue with, all, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So here we have these three sections that seem to work well together. I think there are really just three words, three phrases we're going to look at today. Uh, you may hover over this and you may find different ones but these were the ones the holy spirit seemed to draw my eye to i saw a lot of rich application for me and since uh my preaching really is to me first and you become the victims of that so be it here we are so um i want to start just with this idea of uh fruitful labor here uh and Think about that for just a moment. It, would, it should be fairly obvious. You don't need to have ever read the Bible before to see the main idea here, right? There's a tension here. Uh, Paul is thinking out loud about something. There's a tension between two things. And in this case, it's a tension between two good things. Should I, if I die here in prison, that'll be better. I'll be with Christ. It'll be more of what I've been living for. But if I stay... There's work to be done here. And so he's experiencing the tension between those two. But I would suggest to you that as, as he thinks about these out loud, it actually reveals itself to him as a tension between the big story and Paul's story. Even though it's between two good things. And, and just a little side note here. I think this is one of those moments in the Bible where there's a beautiful example of public vulnerability. Paul is being vulnerable to his audience. He's telling them something about himself, a tension that he is wrestling with. And we know that because the, the Greek language here is kind of all over the map. It's missing grammar. Uh, and the Greek was the original writing of Paul. It's missing grammar. It's, spontane- it's very spontaneous. It's a run-on sentence. Clearly, Paul is just kind of trying to process this out loud with people. And this kind of vulnerability should be common among us. This kind of vulnerability should be common among us all the time. Because if you belong to Jesus, you are constantly experiencing tension. You're constantly being pressed between Two good things. Sometimes you're, pro- you're being pressed between a bad thing and a good thing. You're, pr- you're being pressed, as the text go- goes on to say here, uh, I think does it have it between what's far better for me, but what's necessary for someone else. What's far better for me versus what's necessary for others. Or in this case, the word labor. I can either depart and be with Christ, and that will be the end of my labor, or I can stay here and labor on. So the tension Paul is experiencing is between less suffering for me or more suffering for others. And I think that tension's always playing out in followers of Jesus if they're really following Jesus. Uh, so that's the one thing I, I, I appreciate here is this vulnerability and this reality that it's hard work to follow Jesus and to be involved in other people's lives. But then I want you to think about this. Imagine how different this would read if that word fruitful wasn't there. To stick around means labor. And by the way, lots of times for me, that's how I think of it. Why would Paul include this word fruitful in here? I think this is so encouraging and so helpful. I think he includes it in because Paul is reminding himself and he's reminding us Of the promise that's attached to our labor. The kind of labor that requires hardship in following Jesus. The promise is there is eternal fruit to your labor. There are very few things in life that have that guarantee, by the way. Make a million bucks and pass it on. No guarantees, right? So forth and so forth. But here this beautiful thing reminds me of another verse in 1 Corinthians 15 by the same guy, Paul. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing something. Just imagine this verse if it didn't have this last phrase. It just would sound like oppression. Knowing this, that your labor's never in vain in the Lord. And by the way, the work of the Lord isn't just going out and ta- telling people about Jesus, the work of the Lord is changing diapers. The work of the Lord is just getting up the next morning and bringing in an income. The work of the Lord is all over the place. All of these things that, are, that we realize are being done for the Lord. All these things that, at least for me, maybe you're not wired like me, uh, they scream utter futility to me all the time. I'm not doing anything important. I'm not making any difference. This isn't working. No one's listening. I get those voices in my head all the time, usually around Sunday morning. But um, knowing, you know that in the Lord, all of your toil is not in vain. And then I think about this. Why would Paul put this verse in there? And why would God give this verse to us? Because we think it is in vain. Because we give up abounding in the work of the Lord. It's always easy to get excited about work when it's got sexy results. But lots of times it doesn't. And in fact, here's the thing. I think Paul believed that his labor was fruitful even when he couldn't see the fruit. That's the beauty of that promise. One little verse. So this whole idea is, is all about being hard-pressed and uh, even in small things. So Kathy and I were shopping the other day and uh, there I was just kindly going along and I saw something. And then I hovered over that something. I was hard-pressed to take that whole big pumpkin cheesecake, (laughs) but Kathy said, well, I think we should wait till we have more people over. I just, I, I, and I, and she said that, and she walked away, and I just sat there, and I hovered over it, and I hovered over it, and I, I just thought. Surely I can deceive myself into thinking that I won't eat as many pieces as are represented in the slices around that <laughs> cheesecake. But in that, fu- that moment, I was actually, I know this sounds stupid and silly, but I was really struggling. This isn't right. I should be able to do this. Uh, and I, it took all the willpower in the world to walk away from that. Uh, The point was, it was not an easy choice, and the choice Paul is making here is not an easy choice, but the morning after for me was a lot better because I felt like I had escaped a near-death experience. (laughs) And the thing that I think we see right off the bat here is the big story is always the harder choice, yet it's vastly the more worthy one. It's always a hard choice, but it's vastly a more worthy one than living for my own big story. And then we get to the real def- definition in some ways. Let's get the big story out of the, out of the clouds and let's put it on the street. And that's what brings me to this second idea. Here's one of the best definitions of discipleship I can find in the Bible. It is laboring away for the progress and joy in the faith of others. That's what discipleship is. It's laboring away confident that it's fruitful labor for the progress and joy in the faith of others. So what does progress mean? Well, a simple answer would be I mean, what does Christian growth look like, right? How do you know you're you're growing as a Christian? And generally we get a good answer like it's Christ likeness. And that's a right answer by the way. That's a good answer. I've never been real satisfied with that answer because it just seems too abstract for me. You know, Philippians does a great job of bringing that down to earth. When we get to the beginning of chapter 2, sometime in this year, when we get there, all these virtues, all these characteristics of Christ are listed in the first couple of verses. You know what progress is? It's the characters, it's all these characteristics of Christ, like grace and compassion and love. It's all those characteristics of Christ coming out of us and being experienced in a church family, in community. It's not just those characteristics coming out and me, experience, me displaying them to others. It's about me displaying those among other believers, It's all about this experience of uh, Christ in community. Maybe another way to put it in, in terms of progress is to think of the two great commandments Jesus said. It's loving God so much that I wind up loving my neighbor as instinctively as I love myself. That's what progress is in the Christian life. Now, interestingly, I would say this. For some of you, progress is not sinning less. It's thinking less of sin. For some of you, progress is not sinning less. It's thinking less of sin and more of grace. It's one of the things I've observed. There's there's this what I call ouchness. You know, people read the Bible, they hear a sermon, they get exposed to some Christian book, and they feel a sense of ouch. The Word of God exposes them like it's supposed to. But if you don't move beyond ouchness... You're missing out on so much of the Christian life. It's it's like you got to move past conviction to Christ bragging. So you might say, you know, I'm not that great at prayer. Oh man, I read this prayer book and it just revealed I'm not that great at prayer. Okay, that's the ouch. Now move past it but isn't it great that Christ is praying for me and I never have to be that great at prayer that someone's actually praying for me? And guess what? The very fact that he's exposing that means that he's got a new project for us to work on. And he's always going to outwork me on that project. That's Christ bragging. That's exciting grace stuff at work. So some of you need to Not think about sinning less, but think about not thinking of sin or thinking of sin less. However, others of you, I know who you are, by the way. (laughs) You need to be thinking of sin more. You need to move past your sort of dull, sleepy walk with Jesus to a lot more ouch in your life. Uh, And I'm happy to help in that area, by the way. Um, in fact I'll tell you something here you know we we post these articles back on the bulletin board out there and we just put a new one out and uh, Kathy's the big supplier of these articles so I always try to read them so I know what's out there this one's called too old to covet and wow it made me realize ways that I covet that I never even thought of as coveting so these are great ouch articles not always sometimes they're sometimes they're bear hugs but this one's this one's a wonderful ouch that points you to Christ. So, um, so that's what progress is. But what about this joy in the faith? And I think it's important to notice that it doesn't say joy of faith. It says joy in the faith. And whenever the Bible says the faith, it's almost always talking about not faith as an experience, but faith as content. So in this sense, I would say it's deep awareness It's deep awareness of all the promises of the gospel. It's deep awareness of the kingdom that Jesus is building right now on planet Earth. And so think of it this way. When you become a believer, what's essentially happening is that uh, you're being transferred to another country and you don't know the language, the gospel language. You have to learn the gospel language. And so joy in the faith is the blessing of walking around with a translator who's always making sense of what God is doing. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in her life. And the longer you're around that translator, the more you just pick up on the language faster and faster, you become fluent in it. And you begin to get energized by this contented perseverance that the Bible calls joy. So, this this section here is about others, right? It's about progress in others. It's about joy in the faith in others. The idea is that this is what we labor for. This is what we labor for. This is the big story. This is the wealth that we've received from Jesus, sharing it to others in an other-centered operation. That's what we're all about. So this is the beauty, I think, when you... Uh, and let me just... Uh, rehearse this too, because I think Mark ten the the, the passage that uh, Jordan read for us. There we go. Uh, I want you to look at this passage one more time, because it really brings this all together. This sort of other centered operation of surrendering your story for the big story. But Mark chapter ten. Here Jesus is. He's he's at the end of his his uh, ministry. He's been investing in these guys for hundreds of hours. He's about to turn everything over to them. And these two brothers, James and John, come up to him in verse 35, and they ask a very normal question. You're bringing in a kingdom, right? Check. Uh, You're going to be reigning over Israel and all the nations, right? Check. You're going to need other people to rule with you, right? Check. Uh, We'd like to be on your right and your left, if that's okay. Um, so it any one of us would have probably asked that question and by the way notice how the other 10 wish they'd asked it first in this story but essentially what happens in 35 through 29 or 39 is they say we want to rule beside you jesus great motives i want you to rule beside me i've been telling you you're going to rule beside me and then jesus goes through this strange little dialogue are you able to drink the cup that i drink?" To be baptized like I'm going to be baptized? Oh, yes, absolutely. Which in their mind, that was figurative language for, are you willing to uh, are you willing to suffer with me? Are you willing to die with me? Like they're thinking of a military campaign. A sort of coup, if you will, to overthrow the current Romans. And that's what they're thinking. We are willing to be part of that coup. And, and Jesus says to them, oh, you'll drink the cup I'm going to drink. You'll go through the baptism I'm going to go through. But in a few hours, you'll be shocked what that really is. It's not a rise to power. It's a surrender of the power that's given to you. Like it says in 42 through 44, power is not given to make your story great at the expense of others. Jesus contrasts, there's two kinds of power in this world. Power under Jesus and power under anybody outside of Jesus. I don't care what, I, this is not a cynical view of humanity. This is a Jesus view of humanity. Whatever power you have in life, whether it's the authority you have as a parent, a boss, a, a coworker, worker whatever it is, if it's not under Jesus, you're always going to use that power. Your natural instinct is going to be to use that, that power to make your story great at the expense of others. Always. Only Christ could reverse that to where power is given to us to make others great at our expense. That's why chapter 10, verse 45, one of the first verses I ever memorized. For even the one with all power, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It's not just service period, it's service for the life of others to get closer to Christ. So that's the big story. That's this idea of joy in the face and progress for others. Which leads me to this other big conclusion. That laboring for the big story in others swallows up concern about my story being big. This is so freeing. Hugely freeing. So let me... Let me just make some quick suggestions, some sort of conversation starters, and then I want to wrap this up with just a sort of strange thought to leave you all with. <laughs> but um, How can your story get lost in the big story? So this is a quick flyover. Seniors, for all the seniors out there, people my age and older. Um, uh, here's my thought to you. Start spending your savings. Am I talking about your financial savings? Well, sure. I mean, you don't need to give most of that money to your kids. Let's be honest, okay? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the kids are thinking otherwise. Uh, so, you know, I know, I know, you, you know we we're taught over and over again, well, what about, you know, if I get near the end of my life, I'll need it all for medical bills, okay? Even that's there's a way to think about that. But I'm really not talking about your money. I'm talking about all the rich experience you have of walking with Jesus for years and years and years. Spend it on others who don't have that. And by the way, everybody who's under 65, you need to be grabbing everybody over 65 and having lunch and coffee with them and just bombarding them with questions. Because God has put a wealth of veterans in your midst and you're at war on your own and they're there for you. So that exchange has to happen even more. Now, what about the other seniors, as in seniors as in high school seniors? Uh, And by the way, anybody that's three or four years underneath them. Have you guys heard about this idea of a gap year? Some parents may not like this, but it's the idea of taking a year off from high school to college and using it in selfless service to humanity in some way. And growing up, just a thought, a way to make your story get swallowed up in the big story. Singles. Singles, some of you are wrestling with your calling. Maybe God's calling you to be single. Some of you are transitioning. You're, you're kind of wishing you weren't single, but you can't do much about it. Uh, so here's the thing I would say to you. Would you help the church make you less invisible? Do you know that singles are outnumbering marrieds in our country and if the trajectory continues, there'll be more of them. And singles can feel very invisible in a local church and they're the only ones that can help us make them more visible. We need more singles in our leadership. Just a thought. Parents, you need to manage your margins and monitor your fatigue. And you need to stop believing the lie that everybody, everything that everybody else is doing with their kids, you should be doing too if you're a good parent. Stop it. Less is more. Your kids are not the center of the universe, and they don't need everything you think that they do. Okay, just uh, there's a whole bunch more I could say. I'm just, I'm just trying to start some fires and uh, let, you guys, let you guys figure out how to put them out. Um, all right, so the last thing is this, um, this little phrase, convinced of this. When Paul thinks out loud, and he, he hears himself say, this is what's better for me, but this is what's necessary for you, as soon as he sees those two together, it's like, ding, I know what, to, I know what the right answer is. I need to stick around for you guys. Paul's not being heroic here. He's being Jesus. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. What does he call himself at the very beginning of Philippians? I'm a bond slave. I live for the sake of others. And if, if I could say anything, I would say this. This is the Jesus marker. This is the Jesus marker. The thing that makes you clearly a belonger to Jesus. Of all the things in scripture that describe a Christian, this is it. It's someone who is dying to themselves over and over and over again. Surrendering their glory for the glory of another. Experiencing humiliation for the exaltation of another. They are so overwhelmed by love, they have to give it away. That's why Jesus says this in John 15 or John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, have you ever stopped at that moment? This is the beauty of reading your Bible slowly. And you thought, there's nothing new about that command. That command's been around for thousands of years. What are you, what's Jesus saying here? It's all in this word, just as. How did Jesus love his disciples? He gave up his life as a ransom for many. And by this, all people will know you belong to Jesus by this over and over decision. I found myself when I was going through this section of Philippians several months ago, this haunting question came to the surface. Would I be willing to delay heaven and stay here in half hell for you? My first answer was no. And then I get haunted by that. That's what Jesus would do. No, no, no. That's what Jesus would love to do. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I, most, I will most gladly spend and be spent for the souls of others. He doesn't just say I'll spent, be spent. I will most gladly be spent for the souls of others. I've been saying over and over again, love needs theology to guide it. Otherwise, the gravitational pull of popular thinking will cause you to love fake gods. I think we live in a world of the big story mattering so much more or so much less than my story. And one of the reasons why is for every time you hear or read or get exposed to the fact that the, that the big story ultimately needs to be your story for every time you hear that there are a hundred times and I'm not exaggerating you hear that my story is the big story it's all over the place so I'll give you this to chew on it's something called expressive individualism you'll hear more about it in Philippians you don't need to remember this word it's just a fancy word what you need to do is start identifying the poison of this all over the place Here's the definition. Each person has an inner core defined by their feelings and desires that needs to find outward expression in order for that individual to be authentic. Okay, that's kind of a fancy definition. Doesn't do much for you, maybe. Here's here's one from a guy way back in the 1600s. A French philosopher, not French, Swiss philosopher named Rousseau said, man is born free and everywhere in chains. Man is born free and everywhere in chains. You know what he meant by that? We are chained to polite society. And until we break away from polite society, we will never be truly free. So that trickles down into things like how we think of freedom. What do we call freedom in this country? Freedom is the right to self-government. That's why we had to get rid of King George. It's to do what I think is right. Biblical freedom is not the right to self-government. It's the blessing of being governed by the only one who could truly be right. So freedom, as we think of it, is I'm free to be who I want to be. Biblical freedom is you're free to be who you were meant to be. Which is why, by the way, transgenderism makes so much sense. It really does. Because ultimate authority is in my individual desires. My nature, in other words, my physical body, doesn't have authority to tell me who I am. I and only I have authority to tell me who I am. That idea has been around for hundreds of years before transgenderism. That's another version of it is, there may be a baby in my womb, but it's my womb. Peter Crift is a, uh, he used to be a philosophy professor at Boston College. He recently, this last summer, uh, did a commencement speech at Franciscan University. <laughs> I love the title of his speech. I'm not going to give it all to you, just one, one or two lines of it. Ten uncomfortable things about ten comfortable ideas every commencement speaker tells you to cultivate. <laughs> the first one is Identity. You can be whatever you want to be, isn't even true for God. Hobbits can't become wizards, only better or worse hobbits. Men can't become women, only better or badder men. You can't make yourself immortal. You can't even make yourself a saint, only God can do that. Or then he talks about self esteem, and he quotes from the old show, The Electric Company Show You're the most important person in the whole wide world. In other words, God, how dare you sit on my throne? Hell is nothing more than the worship of ourself as the most important person in the world. That kind of philosophy raises a generation of psychopaths. And he goes on. So I'll just give you one last thought as we come to take bread cup and then a couple questions after you spend a moment thinking about this. It's by another guy, another philosopher named McIntyre, more in the 1940s, 50s. He, he interestingly, he said this, when there is no meta-narrative, which is a fancy way of saying when there's no big story that's above humanity, not from humanity, when there's no big story that governs humanity, think about this, he said this back in the, in the 40s. He said, all talk of right and wrong is nothing but a battle of emotional preferences. So to say something wrong is like saying yellow is better than orange. Again, I don't care if you ever know the name expressive individualism, but I want you to pick up on identifying because it's absolutely radically contrary from what you just saw here in Philippians chapter 1. The big story needs to be the loudest story in our lives. Let's take a minute. Let's think on that. The kids are going to quietly come in. The guys serving uh, in in worship and communion are going to come forward. And then I'll lead us in a minute. If you're visiting with us and you know Jesus as your Savior and King, you're welcome to come and take the bread and cup with us today. So just come down the center aisle. I'll lead us in a moment as we take it together. Something to think about as you sit there and wait for us to take communion together. Have you been convinced, like Paul was, have you been convinced by Jesus to choose what's necessary for others at the expense of yourself? Have you been convinced by Jesus to labor gladly and expectantly for the fruit of progress and joy in the faith for others? That, by the way, is the big story. And it's the only story that makes your story matter for all of eternity. And here's the irony of it. It not only makes your story matter for all of eternity... It makes your story matter less to you in the here and now. That's freedom. So let's pray. Father, thank you for opening our eyes and our ears and communicating to us the richness of a life of suffering and self-sacrifice in the gift of your son. Even right now, as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, We take into ourselves this sacrifice. May it gladly breed sacrifice for the sake of others to come closer to you. For Jesus' increasing glory, we pray.